0: Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. Today we are reviewing all the biggest talking points from match day five in the Champions League, where Newcastle robbed in Paris, why can't Manchester United defend in Europe and what on earth happened to boring, boring Arsenal? Plus, as VAR and refereeing controversy continues to rage, we'll be asking, would fast-tracking ex-professional footballers as referees be a good idea? I'm Gregor Robertson and joining me to discuss all of that are... The chief correspondent for the Times and Sunday Times, Martin Samuel; the football correspondent for the Sunday Times, Johnny Northcroft; and author of the magnificent weekly Times Sports Newsletter, James Gearbrandt. Right <laughs> to Turkey, where Manchester United <laughs> defended <Right>. like turkeys. Turkey. okay, right. <laughs> Galatasaray three, Manchester United three. It's an absolute classic. I think we'll all agree, mm-hmm. agree on that. Thirty-three efforts on goal shared. I think uh, a game where the concept of defending evaporated entirely. Um, United held a two-goal lead twice, but errors from Andre Onana through Galatasaray lifelines and ultimately left United bottom of Group A, needing to beat Bayern Munich on the final match day, and hope for uh, a draw between Copenhagen and Galatasaray. So, uh, you know. Their their Champions League future <laughs> is hanging by a very thin thread. Mm. Um, Martin, yes, your column, um, the headline was a, a play on a famous Clive, Clive Tilesley line from the the 1999 Champions League yes. final. Mm. Can they blow it? They always blow it. Yeah.
1: Well, well, Clive said famously in 1999, "Can they score? They always score." And. Um, this team is sort of the reverse of the Ferguson team because they, whereas Fergie found ways to win, that Manchester United team found ways to win even when they didn't play particularly well. And and the and the, and the Champions League final, the trouble winning Champions League final is, is a case in point. They weren't great that night at all, but they found a way to win. And Eric Ten Hags United seems to have that sort of reverse Midas touch where <laughs> they get into these fantastic positions and they find a way to lose because, I mean, they've been, they've been ahead now in four of their five Champions League matches. From that, they have taken one win, which needed Copenhagen to miss a penalty with virtually the last kick of the game, and a draw, uh, which was last night's. And the other two games, when they've been ahead, they've lost. Um, they've scored... We've gone through this, I mean, they've scored nine goals away from home. Uh, nobody uh, in the history of English football has ever scored that number of goals away from home and failed to qualify from their Champions League group. At the moment, United are bottom of their Champions League group, having scored nine goals away from home. Um... I mean, if you look at that as an indicator, say just you look at that sort of form as an indicator, right? Nine or nine plus goals away from home in the group stage. There's six um, English clubs that have done it. Two of them went on to win the Champions League, (laughs) two of them went on to reach the Champions League final. So it's a big indicator of your potential as a football team being able to score prolifically away from home in the group stage. And somehow United have turned that to bottom of the group. Um, And if there's a result between Galatasaray and and Copenhagen, and you think there probably will be if both teams need to go for it, someone will probably get the edge, um, then they're out. And it doesn't matter. They can beat... Bayern Munich 12 they're, nil. they're out. If there's a winner in the other game, they're out. It's out of their hands. It's remarkable because when that draw was made, that looked like a classic 2-plus-2 two two Champions mm. League group. You get those groups where there's two obvious good teams, two obvious rabbits... And it's just whoever comes out top of those two good teams is who comes first and who comes second. And that's what that group looked like. You went, oh, right, well, that's Man you and Bar Munich and the other two fight out for the Europa League place. Mm. And instead, it's been this bum fight. And you, you, you can't understand it. You can't. And, and an honest performance sort of sums you, at Manchester United up in Europe because just when you think oh, this is going all right now, they, 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 they look all right now, which is what you've been thinking about Anana for about the last half a dozen matches since you saved the penalty against Copenhagen. You've been thinking, uh, he's turned the corner now, he's going into this role, his players, the players around him like him, clearly. Um, he's commanding his area, he's doing all the things you wanted him to do. Right, this looks okay. And then he has a. Then he turns in a performance like that where you could argue he's catastrophically at fault <coughs> for the second goal. And he's none too cl- he probably mm-hmm. at fault for the first, and he's none too clever for the third, really. So, um, no, it's—it's it, it, it's remarkable. It's just that case of like turning the corner so many times, you end up back where you started. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, but, the Manchester United are the third top scorers in the Champions League, and only Royal Antwerp have conceded more. So yeah. that says it all, Johnny. And uh, yeah. and Anna is a big part of this, isn't he? We have to say that because while he's been improved in Premier League there have been some serious, serious yes. mistakes in the Champions League.
2: I mean, look, look, as as ever with Man United, you find yourself trying to unravel this huge <laughs> tangled mess, yeah. like literally from week to week, because there's so many factors that go into what we're seeing on the pitch at the moment, and yeah, individuals are part of it, and Onana's performance was was kind of mind-blowing in a way. That second free kick, I'm not sure I've ever seen a goalkeeper at that level do something like that, and I sent my missus, it kind of reminds me of, like, I used to play cricket, I play once a year now, but when Johnny, I start... it. <coughs> <laughs> no, but it's a big game in Aberdeen, sure. Greg. Oh, hardy. I could you, you grew up watching on, you go, hardy Brian for, for yeah. Essex. Oh, I, no, could, I could bore you about the Aberdeen grades, but uh, <laughs> I might not have to mention my average. But when I, when I started getting a bit on the old side, and was trying to either field the slips or the covers, I just found myself, I was always diving after the ball, I'd Gone past me because my reactions had gone and my body <laughs> positioning was wrong. And I felt very pathetic. And that's looking at Anana last night. I, I got no idea from a technical aspect what he was trying to do, how a goalkeeper who's not old uh, could, could look so decrepit, getting down late and kind of almost flapping the ball in the net. And that was the second time in the game. So but you know he pulled off some good saves as well. He he saved United against mm. Copenhagen, and he's part of this pattern of inconsistency. I'd throw Bruno Fernandes in the mix, who having scored an absolute belter um, uh, in, in the in the first half, then gives away two ridiculous free kicks. The second one in particular is mm. just a, a pathetic attempt to challenge someone, and then he sinks to his knees with the. He looked he was going to cry. Yeah, with the <laughs> kind of hands in prayer. What what you know? Why why are the gods against me? No, you've just. You someone in a meaningless <laughs> position and now they've got a free kick at your dodgy goalie. So there's there's all of that, but there's a there's a bigger point about United, which is they're just such an open team. You know, they're just such a badly structured football side. If, if you're gonna play two slow centre backs, four forwards, uh a striker that's trying to run through and goal, kinda nothing in midfield. I mean Scott McTominay wants to join the attackers mm-hmm. and Amrabat's just struggling from an athletic point of view and then a goalkeeper that wants to kick long you're going to get a stretched game because there's no compactness there there's nothing none of the parts are fitting together moving together the way we saw Newcastle hold out against PSG where they were compact and, and they shuffled across together they, were, they, they, they worked as a unit there's none of that were united um, and I, to, to me it's a great lesson in never to fall for scoreboard journalism because after the mm-hmm. Everton game there was a lot of stuff saying oh United are back look at that 3-0 mm-hmm. Everton. Mm-hmm. Everton had 24 shots mm. and should have been two and up at half time United got a absolutely goal of you know goal of a career from Garnaccio to go ahead the only shot on target in that game in, that, in the first half of that game and then a penalty and then then they were fine but that, that wasn't a convincing reason to say United were back and then you look at the other wins they've had in this sequence I was at the Luton game they were Were they lucky to win 1-0? Maybe not, but they weren't convincing 1-0 winners. Luton had plenty of the match. They're probably lucky to win 1-0 at Fulham. Fulham had 18 shots in that game. United score in the 93rd minute. So, last night, in the Champions League, I think we've seen more... It's it's like, like United's underlying faults are all coming out in front of our eyes on these Champions League nights, but they're also there in the Premier League. And we might be in danger of then going back to... Stuff we've talked about before, yeah. but you have to make the point again that this is eighteen months into Ten Hag, and we're still seeing something that's hard to kind of recognise from a, a structure and identity point of view.
3: Do you agree with that, James? I I, I do. I think um, I think they've taken, if you just in terms of performance, just sort of stripping away the, the results for a moment. I think just in terms of performance, I, I actually think they've taken a, a step back from from last season. I think they're they're worse. Um their control of games is is worse to my mind. And and as Johnny says, I, I'm I'm just struck by I'm I'm not a kind of, you know, I'm I'm not by any means sort of a, you know, on the kind of ten hog out bandwagon. I would be inclined to give him more time. But but I'm also I also think you have to say it's it's very hard to discern, you know. Patterns of play, you know, anything where you, that you could sort of really kind of hang your hat on and say, I oh, yes, I really see what Eric Ten Hag is building." I I, I just don't get that sense. I, I think one th- one thing also, I mean, clearly, they're not a defensively stable team this year. But but one thing also I'd, I'd point to on this cur- current run, and Johnny kind of slightly touched on it when when he was talking about Bruno Fernandez there they're not an emotionally stable team. They're, mm. they're sort yeah. of, they're mm. so up and down. I mean, and you know, the last season, when they had that really good run, a lot of it coincided, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, with a period where David De Gea and Rafael Varan and Casemiro mm. were all fitting in the team. Mm. And, uh, then, you know, you can quibble with the the form and the performances of, of each of those three players. Like none, you know, none of those three players, I think, have really excelled for Manchester United. You know, Casemiro's form actually, I think, really fell away quite quite sharply. I also completely understood the decision to try and, you know, upgrade on De Gea to, um, you know, to, to try and add a, a new kind of dimension to the team yeah. from the goalkeeping position but i also think that losing those three players who had who all had a kind of steadiness to them and a sort of steadying effect on the team i think I, I i feel that loss is being felt a little bit this season that they're just i mean perhaps it's harsh to sort of um, you know, to pick on the the moment against Copenhagen where, you know, we're not save that last minute penalty. Because of course, you know, you would expect to see a sort of, you know, emotional reaction to that, you know, to a last minute penalty save. But it's just it just feels so up and down at the moment, you know, mm-hmm. it it just it, it it sort of um it feels like sort of wild swings between the highs and lows and and, and a real lack of kind of stability in all senses i would say
1: if you look at um garnacho last night if you you think of garnacho in Mm. copenhagen where manchester united get another one of those uefa gifted penalties like for handball Mm. um and they score it and i think they go three two up at that time Mm. and garnacho runs over to the copenhagen fans and puts his hands to his lips and, (laughs) and you're thinking Mate, there's half hour to go. I really wouldn't have gone there. And next thing you know, they lose 4-3. And they get an equally unjust penalty given against them. Last night, Ganacho scores fabulous goal very early on and goes over and makes a gesture to a stadium that, that we've, we've all watched football there. And we all know how nutty it can be at times. And he's telling them to shut up after mm. about 10 minutes. And you're thinking there's a long way to go what are you winding them up for what, what are you mm. playing that game just you know and you think back and I you know and I'm sorry to keep harking back to Ferguson's teams and, and everything but they did know how to do it you know you wouldn't have seen that from from those guys you know Roy, Roy Keane was a was a warrior mm. But he wasn't a guy to run over to the Galatasaray home support and tell him to shut up after 10 minutes because he knew there was 80 minutes to go and you all need to keep a a bit of a lid on it. Paul Scholes um, last night was talking about Scott McTominay's performance. You know, there's no better footballer than... You know, there's no comparison. You know, as good as Scott McTominay has been in recent weeks, there's no comparison with Paul Scholes. But Paul Scholes... Wouldn't have been as gung ho about last night's performance as, as Scott yeah. McTominay was, despite having the capability to destroy that uh, um, Galatasaray. There's not a single player that Galatasaray I've got that would get in a team ahead of Paul Scholes. No. But he would have kept a lid. They would all have just been a, a bit more emotionally stable. And, the, you know, speaking to James's point there, just a little bit more emotionally stable about a game that was very volatile and that really they sort of had one after 17 minutes I mean that stadium was getting quieter and quieter yeah. it, if they'd have just let that drift a little while without, without Galatasaray getting back into the game that stadium would have been dead about 10 minutes after half time it really would it would have been very very quiet we've all seen it out there it goes nuts and then it goes very quiet if it's not going their way
3: i think game game management and and also time management is is a related point isn't yeah. it you know i mean yeah. i think back to the um the europa league was it the europa league quarter final or the semi final last season where they i think it was, it was it was against sevilla and in the home leg they were 2-0 up i think mm. and should have been out of sight really they were, mm. so, they were so they were playing so much better than Severe. and it was the game where they somehow contrived to let them back in and concede two goals and and you know end up with a 2-2 from the home leg mm. and obviously then go and, uh, went and got beaten in in Seville um, I think it was Sevilla uh, or was it mm. or was it to the right VRL I can't remember
1: I think it was Sevilla it was yeah. it was severe.
3: Um again just just that that game management knowing you know knowing where you are in the in the tie or in the game mm. and just being able to keep it under control knowing when to lock it down and sort of mm. I, again is, is a quality that I, that they that I think they lack
0: I suppose the thing that Ten Hag would you know look you can ask as well how much of that is 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 on Ten Hag but when your goalkeeper's throwing in goals that changes the changes the momentum changes the mood the mood of the game Changes the balance, <laughs> balance of yeah. you know mm. play. So again, yeah. it does come back to the to the kind of chaos of the, some individuals as well.
2: It 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 does, but of course, he's a he's a Ten Hag recruit, and he, he, yeah. he probably knew what he was getting—a a mercurial goalkeeper who who can be incredible, um, but but also isn't isn't as reliable as as, as some others. Um, Anthony, I and mean, we have talked about instability as a mm. footballer. I mean, another Ten Hag signing all over the place don't know what you're going to, well you actually do know what you're going to get, it's going to cut inside, but it's, um. you know, it, it, emotionally no control there. I think back to the Luton game I was at, I mean, they were getting counterattacked by Luton in stoppage time. What, what's happening? You know, you're one up at home, mm. you're on the brink of a, a much-needed win, you're playing Luton and you're, I, I don't know, you're, you're sort of pouring forward and getting,
1: you know, kind of clinging on a little bit in, in, in stoppage time. You do yeah. wonder, you, uh, and I haven't done the research. I am planning to do the research, so I'm not going to um, labour this point mm. too much. Mm. But a pal of mine who in football mentioned to me last night how often, as an Ajax manager, are you two new up yeah. against a team that's actually capable of coming back to three two in that in the Dutch league. You wonder how much experience Eric Ten Hag has actually had of being in that position yeah. and actually coming up against a team that doesn't think the game's over. Yeah. Because one would imagine, against a lot of the teams in that league, if Ajax go 2-0 up, the other team go into damage-limitation mode more than, well, let's have a go at this. It's the It's the argument about that time when uh, Spurs were a man down and 3-0 down yeah. at half-time against Inter Milan and came out and tried to win it. and 4-0 uh, down, sorry. 4-0 down and a man down against Inter Milan at half-time and came out in the second half and tried to win the game. And you could see that Inter Milan had never in any way considered <laughs> that the other team well, weren't going to look at them in the tunnel and go, right, we're not hurt each other. And, you know, it's it's Istanbul. It's why Liverpool it, come back in Istanbul.
2: And AC Milan were utterly perplexed as well.
1: well absolutely, cause, because at that point in, in, in Italian football, it's like, right, damage limitation, we don't know... And Tottenham came out with one man less and 4-0 down and tried to win the game. And you could tell that Inter Milan didn't know what had hit them. You do wonder, in a similar sort of way with Eric Ten Hag, how many times he comes up against a team that thinks 2-0 down is a basis for negotiation as opposed to um, <laughs> a, as opposed yeah. to a moment at which you go, right, well, let's not get beat 6-0 by our axe and, and we'll just batten down the hatches and and... You know, try not to concede again. I don't know. It's just a just a thought. I'm I'm, I'm going to try and check it out. Yeah.
0: Well, from a lack of control and discipline um, by Manchester United, there was a lot of that by Newcastle United in in Paris, and you know, a huge controversy with uh, Killian Mbappe's penalty late on to deny gut, uh, Newcastle a, a, what would have been a gutsy win. Um The penalty decision, the spot kick was awarded after a VAR review um and the referee going to the pitch side monitor to eventually rule that Tino Livramento had handled the ball inside the box when blocking across. DeVar <laughs> is uh the VAR who, who uh reviewed this has since been stood down, um, which is a clear indicator that they've that UEFA feel this was a mistake. Um mm. and I feel I think that we'll all agree, uh, watching this we felt the same.
1: Mm.
2: Mm. Yeah. yeah a pathetic decision. Yeah. A l- ludicrous decision and and you know a travesty for Newcastle, given how much they put into the game. I mean, I mean that you would have to say that PSG missed about. <laughs> they did. Yeah. But Barcola missed by himself, missed about five open goals. Mm. So in, you know, in some senses, of course, PSG getting something was fair. But in another, you know, fundamental sense, it was unfair because Newcastle had got to the brink, having heroically mm. held out and. Um, and with a team that is so decimated by injury
0: and a 17-year-old midfielder. Yeah. You know, it's incredible. Yeah.
2: Brilliant. I mean, it's hard not to kind of draw the contrast or it's hard to avoid drawing the the, the contrast. But, you know, we're talking about emotionality and so on. Eddie Howe's reaction to, to that whole thing has been yeah. fantastic. He hasn't... No. Didn't, didn't come out all crying and swinging about no. the, the decision. Um, Moving on to the next thing. and And... Trying to, I think, just keep keep Newcastle where they are, which is in a really good moment. They've got a siege mentality going. They're working so hard in every match, um, and and that's the way to do things. And um, they, you, you just got to take your hat off. I mean, his ability to coach, um, pressing, coach, compactness, um, and and engender that that sort of group spirit. And we saw it at Bournemouth, and he's managed to do it on a bigger scale. And that was always my doubt, I suppose. I know, I know at Bournemouth, having visited him a couple of times there, that a lot of it was built on enormous effort, individual effort, one-on-ones mm. with players, a lot of culture stuff, putting pictures up in the in the training ground, the the wheel, the four-foot four wheel, all that stuff. And I, I did think, I wonder if you could do that at a bigger place because it's just it's just more difficult. Mm. But he he, he is and he's 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 reaping the reaping the rewards and i think it'd be much i mean as martin said you get some groups that have got a couple of rabbits in them but then you get newcastle style groups yeah. and for them to, for could them could be anything could be anything could be anything you know when, and
1: it, when it started it could have been anything and it still it still could be, be. Uh, yeah yeah in in three of the three of the teams yeah,
0: yeah absolutely yeah. anything now, and the headline on on you know following that same theme the headline on martin hardy's piece today is that how how comes of age on a night he forgot his own birthday so this is kind of yeah, yeah. the first part of that is about as we say he's you know he said he'd never even been to a Champions League game before this season yeah. not even as, as a spectator um, and the latter bit was an indication that his birthday was the next day and he's so kind of committed mm. and uh, fiercely devoted to his job that he forgot about it but he, we, well, everything Johnny's saying is true Martin Eddie Howe Looks like he belongs on this stage. Oh, without
1: a doubt. Without a doubt. It's interesting, you know... (laughs) Everything is such a, a, a truism or a cliche, or whatever a statement of the obvious. But everything is decided by results. Because Graham Potter mm. also said he'd never been to a Champions League <laughs> game, and and that then became this stick to beat him with, you know, yeah. because the results weren't going well. With Eddie, you know, exactly the same statement, and it, it's you know, but look how well he, you know, look how well he's done, look how well he's adapted, and uh, Eddie's done a, a, a fabulous job there, and and. and you know, there's a there's a philosophy there, and and it's a it's a hard working philosophy, which is important at Newcastle because I know Newcastle have had wonderful strikers and great uh, skillful players, and they love that side of it. But it's not a part of the world that you know you can get by without working hard as well. Yeah. They want they want the players to to feel as strongly about it as they do, and this is a team that you can say. That's true of, that you look at that, and it's a team that reflects the area in a lot of ways. It works hard. Um, and, yeah, they got stiffed. They got absolutely stiffed. It's, it's a, the, the UEFA's interpretation of the handball is just mind-boggling, because there's not a single professional walking the earth that would give that penalty against Livermento. So how have the people decided on the guidelines for UEFA? Oh, including the referee, who wouldn't uh, give it. Come out, exactly, come up with that. <laughs> I, the other thing is, I don't understand why they've stood down the VAR, but not the actual referee, because the VAR should come over and have a look at the, uh, at the, at the television monitor, but as was, show, as was proven at the uh, Bayern Munich game, uh, against Copenhagen last night just because you go over and have a look at the monitor doesn't mean you've got to give the penalty uh, Stephanie Fairplayer reversed her own decision basically whilst looking at the monitor yeah. so something's changed something's gone on between Tuesday <laughs> and Wednesday night now I mean it's it's the marquee competition uh, in, in club football around the world you know you can't change the rules of it between Tuesday and Wednesday night. You know that that that's a Fred Karno's operation. It really is. Mm. I mean, oh, we're playing this set of rules on Tuesday, this set of rules on Wednesday. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's well, set... you, you you also
3: can't have a situation. I, I mean, the whole, the whole thing obviously is you know it, it it is actually inherently quite comical. But but on a serious <laughs> note, you, you cannot have a situation where the interpretation of such a fundamental part of the game, the handball mm. law, yeah. is different. From you know, from the Premier League to European competition, yeah, because you know, obviously, we we all the know Premier League aren't outliers. We should say that it's, it's yeah. most domestic leagues. That's and correct. UEFA. That is correct. Absolutely. Mm. Um, but um, the yeah, as we all know, the the handball law affects the way that defenders defend. You know, we all see we've all seen defenders sort of you know with their arms kind of tucked behind. Them. You can't have a situation where a defend hmm. you know a defender is thinking you know, well you know. I could sort of you know maybe sort of have my arms out a little bit more you know in the, it, it's just you know also what, none of that goes what, through what, a
0: defender's head when he simply was turning yeah, right yeah, no of course to shit, defend the course. ball but, but, you, but uh, you just you
3: just cannot to my mind you just cannot have a situation where you know a, a, a defender has got to sort of bear in mind that the mm. game you know such a fundamental part of the game mm. is going to be legislated yeah. slightly differently depending on what competition they're oh. in i mean that to me is just nonsensical yeah. that
2: it 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 does say without opening oh, no, up the VAR can of worms too much, but, um, but we'll come to that later, Johnny. Well, well,
3: <laughs> but wait, but when, when the you, can opener is being prepared? <laughs> here it? we are, so here
2: it comes. But when when you when you try and make the argument that look VAR is not working, it's just not working. It's not worth the aggravation. Let's just let's just move away, pivot away to something else. You get a big school of thought coming back. They are, it's not the problem it's the individuals mm-hmm. it's those referees in the premier league no it's it it's wrong everywhere see what's happening in scotland see what's happening in on european nights uh, it's not there's it, it, not the perfect individual out there that's a, that's, that's a whole point
0: and this is the referee who refereed the world cup final yeah,
2: brilliant the champions yeah, league final absolutely brilliant yeah, yeah, super cup this final, final. But he's, but he's not infallible he's the greatest
1: well. referees in in yeah. the world this guy um, so the
2: idea of VA will be fixed by finding a perfect set of individuals to administer it. not mm. going to
1: happen well it, 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 the, the thing with that is I, I just I don't understand how UEFA can play a version of the rules I, I, I never, I, I, always know, used to, I know I always used to think that of English football in many ways where there were tackles in English football that were, that were waved away that on the continent would be yellow card offences or fouls or whatever and i used to write all the time and use this phrase you know we're, we're playing a version of the rules in our in our sport because we like tackles and we like it to be ferocious and stuff like that and now it's gone full circle and it's uefa that play a version of the rules they mm-hmm. play this version where if it touches your hand anywhere um it, it's a penalty, unless there's a big fuss about it. In which case, we've got another version yeah, of the rules yeah. that we can play the following the Wednesday night. version. Yeah, the Wednesday version <laughs> of the rules when we realise we've <laughs> messed it up. Um, it, it's it's just because supposedly the people that make these decisions that come up with these guidelines, are professionals. So,
0: well, UEFA also uh, ignored the UEFA professional body who 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 advise how to interpret the rules they they ignored uh their advice at the start of the, uh, yeah. i think it was in april yeah.
1: <laughs> it, it, it's just but there is a, a there is a, a another another point to be made which is all of the psg players surrounded the referee screaming with a penalty mm. <clears throat> At Munich last night, all of the Munich players surrounded the referee screaming for a penalty. Harry Kane and Kimmich were Joshua Kimmich were, were still going at it after the final whistle. And yet, all of those players, if you fast forward 10 years and put them in a, in a, in a television studio giving opinions on the game, and they'd seen that, they'd go, oh, it's ridiculous if you're going to give mm. that as a penalty. So if that's what you think, what are you surrounding the referee Correct. screaming for a penalty for? Yeah. You know, a little bit of con- little bit of consistency where PSG mm. looked to that and mm. just carried on playing, or or, yeah. or Bayern Munich looked to that and just carried on playing instead of wanting this travesty to take place because it was going to be a travesty that benefited them. And we can argue, oh, that's human nature, and that's, that's, the nature football. Of sport. that's <laughs> yeah. football, or whatever. Yeah. But it's nonsense yeah. as well, isn't it? That's yeah. be
0: honest. Well, Newcastle's final group game is against AC Milan at St James's Park um next month and as we said they've still got everything to play for um and yeah that's the group of death they've they've uh they're stolen with a shout and they're going into the final match day okay still loads more to come if you're enjoying the podcast make sure you're subscribed just go to the times.co.uk forward slash the game for the latest subscription offer Welcome back to the Game Podcast from the Times, I'm Gregor Robertson, joining me are James Gierbrandt, Martin Samuel and Johnny Northcroft. Uh, to the Emirates next, where Arsenal cruised through to the Champions League last 16 as group winners after a breathtaking first half display which helped them on their way to a 6-0 win against at um, The Emirates, six different goal scorers, their entire front five uh, among them, Johnny what happened to... Boring, boring Arsenal. <laughs> that seems to be the narrative yeah. in the Premier League this season. Uh, they're kind of going under the radar a little bit, despite going yeah. top of the league at uh, the weekend. But it looked like they really clicked um, at the Emirates.
2: Yeah, I, I was going to say, well, <clears throat> what we've seen in the Premier League has been, you know, real efficiency from Arsenal um, without uh, the sort of thrills and spills. And last night was different, but actually, it was also a very efficient performance. It just didn't give ones a sniff. They were just mm. beautifully oiled. Um and scored some great goals. The Martinelli goal in particular was, was, was fantastic. The, the the front five moved beautifully. Declan Rice I thought was fantastic as well, just the way he was driving forward from midfield and just it was a one man sort of transition. Um it was it a was, it was a it was a joy to watch. I loved the um the uh, interviewer's question to Michel Arteta afterwards where he, he said, you know, Mikel, was that one of the best halves of football you've had at Arsenal? as if Mikel was supposed oh, well there was that one we were 8-0 up and there was another half when yeah. we were 10-0 <laughs> up yeah. you know I mean you're not going to get much better than that in, 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 in management and, and yeah Arsenal may maybe a bit under the radar because it's not as exciting as last year but they might be better
0: James, you've watched a lot of Arsenal, and you also wrote about Kai Havertz at the weekend, and mm. he's scored a couple of goals since then, which was a good timing for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you make of Arsenal this season? As we're saying, there's some, that, that's the kind of the underlying feeling that they're not quite clicked yet, and despite that, they're uh, top of the Premier League and through as group winners in the Champions League.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's hard not to be it's hard not to be impressed by Arsenal, even though they sort of haven't necessarily kind of you know really sort of steamrolled their way through the Premier League campaign thus thus far um, yeah I just I just think they're a really impressive team I think generally speaking um, I think defensively they look so so solid like just, I think even you know even more so than than they were last season um, and and I think my my impression has been that in the Premier League that's that's come at sort of a little bit of the ex- at, at the expense of some of the kind of attacking fluency and and obviously also trying to integrate new parts into that attack. Obviously Havertz being being one of those. Um, this was probably the the vision of what
0: most fans would have thought Arsenal's front five might be mm. before the season started. And it's yeah. not really happened, but last night you know Havertz, Jesus, Saka, Martinelli, Odegaard, all scored all. you you know countless examples of of them those five pouring forward at pace so you know is that do you think that's a vision of Arsenal for the future
3: I think it could be yeah and I I think also I think I think Declan Rice uh, you know is such a such an incredible player in that sort of slightly kind of you know hold the fort role in and and I think he does just I think uh yeah, absolutely, a standing player, and, and there's no this is no slight on him, but I think he interprets that role in perhaps a slightly more conservative way than Thomas Party did, and I think just gives maybe a, an element more. <coughs> I'm not sure you could have played, you know, for example, Odegaard Party Havertz as a as a as a midfield three, whereas I think Rice gives you the ability to 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 play Odegaard and Havertz alongside him. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's potentially a you know, it's potentially a tremendous front five, you know, I mean, um, if, uh, you know, with a little bit more kind of, um, you know, the fluency that just comes from playing together a little bit more, obviously having, obviously I know the four players were there last season, but obviously having added Havertz to the mix. um, Yeah, I I mean, it's just, I think to sort of, one thing that's interesting that I sort of wrote about uh, at the weekend is Arsenal's games have gone from being sort of among the most, in inverted commas, in this isn't this is the Premier League, have gone from being sort of among the most exciting. Where well, if you remember, they had a lot of games last season where, you know, I, I think.
0: They um, the most goals per game. I remember, I remember, second most I remember goals this. per game, yeah. I think, of, of any team. And this, and, this is, and
3: this is not, and this is like the, as in for both teams. Mm. Arsenal games contained the second most goals of, of, of any team. And they're right down this season. this is in the Premier League, so this is mm-hmm. obviously the Champions League match. Obviously, there's a slight, slightly different case in point. But um, yeah, I think the games have, have become a little bit more sort of, in inverted commas, boring. Not if you're an Arsenal fan, obviously. But, um, but they're also, again, they're, they're showing that quality of stability, control... Um, a clinical na- nature in front of goal. I, I think, yeah, it's just it, it's just really hard not to be impressed by the job that Mikel
1: Arteta has done.
0: What do you think, Martin? Is there more to come still for Arsenal?
1: I think potentially there is. I think if you look at Declan Rice, you know, someone's got to play rhythm guitar, and and <laughs> you know, and just because you're the rhythm guitarist doesn't mean you're any less important. If you listen to "All My Loving" by the Beatles, if you listen to John Lennon's rhythm guitar and "All My Loving" by the Beatles. It is absolutely astonishing if you try and play as mm. fast as that <clears throat> for about mm. three minutes as he does you know honestly put it on put it on if you're listening to this yeah. at home after the podcast obviously not now don't go away from the podcast whatever <laughs> you do um because your, your 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 recording machine will explode i can promise <laughs> you that we've, we've got that capability but the yeah, if you listen to all my love and how fast John Lennon's rhythm guitar play, it doesn't mean that rhythm guitar is a, is a, an unimportant thing that's going on. It's a real, it's a real driving force, and and that's what it is. You you know, it's not the lead guitars. You know, they're all up front. But what Declan Rice has brought to Arsenal is, um, is game changing for them. It is such an elevation over what they had. Uh, last season he's such an upgrade and and that's why they paid that's why they paid the money that they did Um, and you know we all think Man City will win the league I think most people think Man City will win the league but Arsenal are top of the league now and they've got a chance and they've spent 200 million pounds on players in the summer and that should give you more of a chance than you had last season without a shadow of a doubt they should have more chance of holding man city off this season than last season and th- and why should we one of those one of the reasons for that
2: and i think we we've got to recognise that you know coaching's not about having like a, a gr- drawing up a grand plan and then implementing it you know, it, it's about responding to what, what you see and, and adapting. And at the start of the season, <clears throat> Arteta was experimenting with, with bringing... having party and rice together and disrupted the Gabriel and, and Saliba partnership to try and get Ben White in the middle because he was clearly thinking in sort of pepish terms about getting, you know, everyone in the midfield at some point. And it wasn't really working. And he's he's just had the good sense to take note, reflect... Tweak things and and f- go back to the Saliba and Gabriel and 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 refine what what Rice is doing. Um, bring Havertz on in the right way and 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 now they're flying. And that it, you know it, it's what a top manager does. It's it, it it's it's continually refining and learning and not being dogmatic.
3: I think one other point I'd raise as well is and and I suppose you probably have to give Arteta most of the credit for this is. The, the maintenance of mood and morale, because mm. you look at the last the last two seasons, really, the end of the last two seasons for Arsenal, mm-hmm. you'd have to say, really, we're, we're crushing disappointments. they you know, losing their grip on fourth place and, 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 and Champions League qualification and, you know, losing, a, you know, a title race that, you know, at one stage they seem to be in control of, you know, hugely mm. disappointing, deflating experiences for a squad to go through. But they've started both of the following seasons in in both cases. They've started brilliantly, and and that's so hard to do. I think you know to when you when you are coming off mm. such a you know you feel like you've thrown it away and you've sort of got to start at the beginning again. So easy to kind of succumb to that sort of flatness, and they haven't done that. And I and I think you have to be really impressed by that as well.
1: I couldn't understand why he didn't take Saka off at half time. No, <laughs> no. I mean that. I find that um, mind-boggling. He doesn't um, look like a player who wants to come off. Does no,
2: he said as much afterwards.
0: No,
1: but
2: but you can't do that. <laughs> no, no, you, of you, you know
1: you can't just go oh well, no, no, you come off when you feel <laughs> like it, mate. You know, you, you, I, I was I was amazed. I mean, the, the, the score line. If ever there was, I can understand some of the guys that have been out injured that you might think right, they need to get minutes in their legs. They, you know, but Saka at times this season has has looked as if he, he, he you know, he could do with a break. Um, and I was just amazed that he didn't say, right, mate, you, you've won the game for us in 45 minutes. You know, take the rest of the night off, basically.
0: Well, Arsenal are through, um, as are Manchester City, who were confirmed as group winners with a 100% record after coming back from 2-0 down to win 3-2 against RB Leipzig. Celtic are out uh, following their 2-0 defeat against Lazio um any other business jude bellingham doing yeah, more jude bellingham we're stuff <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh, what,
2: what, what, what could you say but that assist if you haven't seen it already yeah. have a look yeah. at that have a look at that assist yeah, yeah. and what it means the game can kind of already done anyway but you know what what that meant to him and, and the quality of it when you
1: look at the records that 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 Kane and bellingham are when you look at the names of the people that they'll overtake, you know, mm. like Bellingham has now got, a, is more prolific in certain, uh, you know, scoring um, charts than Di Stefano was uh, when he first arrived at Real Madrid. Harry Kane has now scored more goals than any other English player <laughs> in the Bundesliga, and he's only played 12 <laughs> matches. Now, mm. so that includes Kevin Keegan, who won, uh, you know, yeah. with the <laughs> European Footballer of the Year. At Hamburg, and didn't score as many goals in a season as Harry Kane has in twelve matches for Bayern Munich. I mean, it, it's it's astonishing stuff. Yeah. It's astonishing
0: stuff. Do you think either of Bellingham or Harry Kane might fancy turning their hand to refereeing when they end up with this? <laughs> <laughs> Probably well, not. Jude can do anything. They couldn't do any that. worse. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well that's where we're going next because uh, it's been another bruising week for uh, officials, not just in Europe but in the Premier League as well. After yet more controversy in in Fulham's 3-2 win over Wolves on Monday night. Um and one of the ideas being put forward is um to fast track former footballers um mm. as mm. VARs, assistant VARs, referees. Mm-hmm. Uh, Martin Ziegler has written a story this week about a dozen football league players who have put themselves forward to do just that. Martin, you you wrote about this in a, in a mm. column earlier in the week as well. It's uh, it, it's an idea that's always that's been put forward for a few yeah. decades and yeah. Uh, never really come to fruition. Um, and it's going to be complicated.
1: It's going to be very complicated, um, simply because we live in a time of zero trust, enormous suspicion over, over everything. So, to give an example, last week, Chris Kavanagh um, refereed at Manchester City versus Liverpool. Mm-hmm. The moment it became known that Chris Kavanagh was refereeing... Um, there was a lot of pushback on social media. He's from Greater Manchester. How can he be given a Manchester City? He comes from Ashton Lime. It's five miles away from the Etihad Stadium. There is no record whatsoever that Chris Kavanagh supports either of the major Manchester clubs. The fact that he's refereed them multiple times um, would suggest this. And yet, just this sort of set of facts you know, put together means that he couldn't possibly be a a fair arbiter of Manchester City versus Liverpool. So my only question about all of this is, so how are we going to get on with an ex-professional when a lot of ex-professionals have got eight clubs, nine clubs? So by the time you um, exclude all of those, and then you exclude every single club that could be influenced by the fact that a guy that used to play for Preston North End now this could affect promotion in the championship we'll have a look at the championship table um, and if you you know <laughs> any to, every team that mm-hmm. could possibly end up in the top six right you can't referee them because he used to play for Preston well we'll get we we are going to have to learn or, or football generally is going to have to trust a little bit more in the integrity of the participants. And I'm not talking about, you know, Matt Leticia, you know, being VIR for Southampton. You're talking about fellas that have had a lot of clubs and, and stuff like that. The sort of EFL guys that have applied, one imagines might be fellows who haven't made a huge amount of money mm. out of the game, Journeyman professionals. Well, journeyman professionals tend to have multiple clubs.
0: Well, it's funny you should say that. The, the PFA. Did, I'm, I'm writing a piece about this for the weekend, so I've right. done a little bit mm. looking into it. And the the PFA, in conjunction with the FA and PGMOl, ran a course uh, in 2019, I think. Mm. And the most, rec- the you know, I think only a handful of players actually yeah. Yeah, 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 took yeah. this up, took this offer up. And the most recognizable name was Chris Iwuluma. Um right. and. He's a veteran of eighteen clubs. <laughs> so you have a point. You absolutely have a point.
1: But, um, so by the time you take all of those eighteen clubs out of the equation, well, it can not work. It you wouldn't can. work then. I, I, you can. And then, and you, then you take all the clubs yeah. that could potentially be affected by one of those eighteen clubs out of the equation. Yeah. I, I mean, he's at Breakin City, basically. You know, <laughs> that, that's about the only place. You know, uh, we they, I, I, I use as example uh, Marcus Bent because I think Marcus Bent ended up with fourteen clubs or whatever. And by the time you took all of the. The only clubs. You, the only league he could have refereed in is League Two. They don't even have VAR anyway. So it, mm. it, it, it it's that sort of. Unless we are prepared to go, well, look, yeah. just because someone played seven games for Blackpool, yeah. you know, we don't make him a, reg, a regular behind the goal and standing there in a big orange and white scarf. You know. so, more
0: broadly. What, are there are there merits in this Johnny? like is there mm. is there an untapped source of of expertise here that can possibly be mined um what do you think about the, th- the well, idea and theory with, without
2: a doubt there's the, you could see they could see the potential i mean martin's absolutely correct about the fact we need to actually just trust a bit more and 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 not you know not 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 kind of le- trying someone that you'd have to leave someone's playing career aside clearly in terms of um, partisanship, but in, but in terms of what a footballer could bring, of course, you know, we, we we're talking before coming on about the, the the gap that you see all the time now between what happens on the pitch and what ex professionals are saying in the studios. I just, I mean, Owen Hargreaves was speechless last night about the the, the various penalties in 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 Europe this this week. Just saying, I, I don't understand that. You know, the, the, the people making these decisions have not been near a football pitch. And we can't have this enormous gap between the experience of those who've been on the pitch and decisions that are being made. I think there's also clearly the respect that you'd hope that an ex-pro would get from other pros, and that might address behaviour a little bit. Um, you'd, you'd, you'd hope they'd be more nuanced, or it would allow those referees to apply nuance to things like tackles and the force of a tackle, what's fair, what's not, and and you, you can see the benefits one of my questions about it is simply that a bit like coaching, refereeing's become almost a lifelong profession and and I've, I've interviewed a couple of refs or assistants over the years and I find that they start younger and younger now mm. so Akilhausen who I interviewed back in September I mean, he, he, he did play when he was a kid but realised he wasn't quite going to make it and at 14 started refereeing and you're you're getting people now who are coming through the system, in their teens, to, to quite a high level because it's because it's pretty difficult to get all the way to the top. You have to start early. So a bit like coaching, people are taking almost a decision, um, you know, before the point they'd have a playing career. So my only thing is, you know, how do you get these players up to the speed of somebody that's been refereeing f- um, for?
1: 20 years almost before isn't they get it, to the Premier League. Is it not purely about VAR though, Johnny? Are not they? I think they, it's both. I think, I think both. it's both, but it's a lot of it is about VAR mm. having someone sitting in the booth mm. so your 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 referee would quite probably still be a, a, mm. a guy like you're talking about. It's, and it's more the the the, mm. the fellow looking at the cameras guys.
2: I think it's global both. though, isn't it? Yeah, and, and I suppose mm no i think i mean VAR is the crisis That's an that we're trying, yeah, yeah we're trying yeah. to solve but i think the idea is for for players to join the officials pool basically
3: as as a general point i think it's interesting because i sort of instinctively um you know would would view it in the same way as i would instinctively view coaching which is i don't think you know i, I think it's a slightly to my mind regressive is the wrong word but I but I I, I, I I don't necessarily agree that you have to have played the game to be an outstanding coach I mean I think that's you know that's obviously well attested now but it is interesting because I remember um, visiting uh, this was like five or six years ago now I went to visit the Hennes Weisweiler Academy in Germany which is the big German coaching school and this was at the time where you know really at its sort of I mean moment of kind of Peak success where it had sort of just churned out, you know, Julian Nagelsmann and and also Thomas Tuchel and you know a number of outstanding coaches who had not played the game to a you know to a to a really serious level or or you know had not had mm. a kind of um, senior level career. Um, and I I spoke to the uh, the guy who was at the time the head of coaching development for the German FA at the Hennes Weisweiler Academy and said, well, you know, isn't this, you know, great that your you know approach is essentially that, you know, anyone can do it and that, you know, you're churning out so many brilliant coaches who have never played the game professionally. And his, his response was actually very interesting. Cause he said, well, yeah, of course, you know, we will never, you know, we're really pleased about it. You know, it's brilliant that, you know, people like Julian Nagelsmann mm. and Thomas Tuchel have got to the level that they've got to. But to be honest with you, that's not our approach at all. We're actually a little bit concerned that we're not producing top coaches who have been players. We'd Mm -hmm. like it if we were seeing more top players go through the Henness Weissweiler Academy because we recognise that having been a player, it adds something. You know, Mm -hmm. it's something that you cannot... You know, it adds a measure of experience... Knowledge, you know, you've been in those situations that you cannot, you know, you can never replicate and it does just, it it gives you an added something that, you know, surely must be helpful if you're a coach and I suppose you could make the exact same Mm. point about refereeing. Instinctively, it feels a bit, you know, uh, it feels a bit wrong that, you know, a sort of someone, uh, an ex-footballer should sort of be able to, you know, yeah, Jump the queue in inverted yes, commas yeah. over, you know, a sort of career ref who you know because it takes it
0: takes, I think on average eight years to become mm-hmm. fully qualified referee, yeah, and it can some of the guys in the Premier League it's taken them fifteen years, yeah, to reach mm. that level. So yeah, it's they've got a lot of experience in the bank, just absolutely as a footballer has in. As
1: but at the, the same time, when coaching badges, uh, you know, A you B license and you, uh, and all of this first came in, it was accepted that if if you been a manager for five years or ten years or 20 years or whatever you didn't have to start you know getting yeah. your first license or you know that 20 odd years yeah. of experience count that, as, that was your license there, there was your license but and and, and, and and that was your license so you know it's got to count for something it's got because we're seeing decisions it can't be right um as amusing as it may be. It cannot be right that every single weekend we can watch a match on television, Gary Neville is is commenting, and and, and something happens and Gary says, well, that's never a penalty or that's Mm. a penalty or that. And then the complete opposite of what the man says happens. That's the decision. And it's happening every week. It's Mm -hmm. almost comical. And this is not a a, a slight on Gary because he's not wrong. Usually you're sitting there in agreement with him, thinking, yeah. yeah, no, that's right, yeah, that's never a penalty in a million years. Next thing you know, someone goes over yeah. the monitor and gives a penalty. And you're looking at it thinking, really? Yeah. Because this fella played wing, England, played with Manchester, captain Manchester United, he can't always, you know, these guys no. can't always be wrong because they're always sitting in the studio, looking at each other, utterly mystified. They can't all not yeah. know what the hell is going on. They can't all not know the rules of the game. So a lot of what is happening now is completely foreign to mm. people who played the game.
2: Who do you think would be attracted by this, Gregor, among among players? Lute. I mean <laughs> <laughs> Well that's it. Power mixing, that's exactly no, you're right. having, having had the grief well, of look. a playing career, do you want the grief of a refereeing career? But yeah. also there's the economic thing, I mean
0: Absolutely. This is important because if it's yeah. gonna take even if you are being fast tracked, you know, a lot of the guys we're talking about he come from a they still need to continue earning money as soon as they finish playing mm. football. So if you're earning I think you earn hundred and twenty pounds per game in the National League, North and South, a hundred and eighty per game in the National League, and it goes up a little bit mm. in the Football League. And below that you can earn fifty quid a game yeah. or whatever. So it's not a vocation it's not it's not a job. So absolutely I think the practicalities is made it you know, of get of reaching a level where you actually earn a earn a, a decent enough living made it impossible for footballers mm. so far there's only been one Steve Bain who who played 450 odd games um, kind of I think through the 70s and 80s and mm. and, and, and he, he took I think he did it in six years and he's the quickest to get it to being a, fu- a football league referee but he did it as, as Mm. as well as working in a job. So, Mm. absolutely, that's an important part. But it's a balance then because you come back to the fast-tracking idea and they're suddenly going to have to jump the queue Mm. over people who've done it for 10 years. If
1: you're fast-tracking into the VARC in particular, so you're addressing something that is, without a doubt, a critical stage in its development because you've got people that have supported it all throughout, now saying... No, this is a bad idea this this doesn't work you know we should we should we should abandon this so it's not just people that were, were skeptical about it at the start now if you if you could get 20 30 however many you'd need ex-professionals that could sort that out it this is a billion mm. dollar industry you know this isn't 50 quid to to sort of go out or go off to gateshead and 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 run the line or whatever this is a this is an industry that measures its its turnover in hundreds of millions of pounds so you could make it worth somebody's while as long as they were good enough so you'd have to have quite an exhaustive Mm. process um and quite exhaustive vetting and however you wanted to do it. But if you ended up with a with a group of thirty guys um, that could that could actually make judgment calls on VAR that were useful, that were making a, a, a serious contribution to the game and that we were all coming away from matches instead of going, What the hell have we just hmm. watched? Um we're coming away going, Well, yeah, well that makes sense. That looked like a handball, mm. that looked like a penalty, that looked like a sending off. That would be invaluable.
3: Mm. It's complicated though, I think, isn't it? Because I mean that that idea instinctively feels like it would be great. And, yeah. you know, we'd yeah. all love mm. to see that. But I think
0: You're interpreting uh, rules that the, are a the, mess. The referees
3: and the VA then the VARs currently, you know, for all their flaws, I think in most cases are applying the rules as they are written and obviously there'll be exceptions to that where they you know but essentially most of the time could you then uh, you know i think it would be very complicated to then sort of have you know a kind of famous ex-pro come in and sort mm-hmm. of you know give yeah. their sort of more of a kind of gut feel interpretation i am mm-hmm. one you know it's, it's tricky isn't it you get into all sorts of gray areas and and i also completely Completely agree with Martin's original point that the the whole discourse around refereeing and officiating is so convulsed by paranoia yes. and distrust. No. I just can't see it happening. I cannot no. see a world where you could have a famous ex-pro mm. sit sit in in the VAR mm. booth, and you know um, potentially. You know, contribute in well, this very go in his... this very match-defining way, and that not you know just lead to you know outcry about you know yeah. well, he's, minute, he's only doing it so you know they oh, don't he's face Man City benefits, in the last Jesus,
1: sixteen. You know, the, I mean, and the first thing someone would do would go through his Twitter account, and they'd find a tweet twelve years <sighs> yeah. ago when he said, "Oh, great that Manchester United got stuffed on," oh, you yeah, know, and then it'd be, "Oh, why he hates Manchester?" United. The you know, it, it it's look, and we are once again oh, i am um falling into the the, the, the sort of uh, the, the dangerous situation as exactly happened with uh var where where you think because what will happen is mm. they will make every a lot of decisions that completely agree with mine um because that's what everyone thought with var when everyone that was saying. Our VIR will sort everything out. What they're thinking in the mm-hmm. back of their mind is, and everyone will agree with me, yeah, that that was a penalty, team. and that was, uh, you know, and that was handball. Mm. They'll all agree with me. And what they're now furious about is that mm. it turns out no one agrees mm. with anybody. You know, half the time, yeah. and it's it. It would be a similar sort of thing with this because you'd think we'll get a professional in there. So when I'm sitting at home and I look at that and I go, "Well, that's never a penalty in a million years." The fellow in the VAR booth will go, "That's never a penalty in a million mm. years." You're quite right, Martin. That's absolutely right. And and we'll all go on and 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 I'll be happy. Um, but that's not how it works. That is, just, yeah. it's not how it works. So um, no, um, it, but I'd like. I like, I just think those guys, I think their opinions got to count for something. Yeah, I know yeah. what you're saying, James. I know what everyone, I conceal the pitfalls.
2: You look at, I mentioned cricket again. So many examples of brilliant umpires who've come mm. from, from playing, and they really add something, and they've got credibility. Yeah. They've been among the very finest. So many issues with this, I we've touched on, but I suppose um, it's surely worth at least pushing it down the line and exploring See, seeing how many players want to do it I mean that's this would be the litmus test wouldn't it if, if there's not really a big well, appetite for it among former players then well, well,
1: there's
0: a dozen so far that's not that many out of <laughs> no, <laughs> quite no. a lot I tell you what, recently though, retired and current players
1: it's not bad it shows that there must be a crisis of some kind if people are sticking up their hands and saying, well, I'd like to help, I, yeah. I think I could help sort yeah. this out. Because there was one initiative like this a few years ago and they didn't get a single person. Mm. Not a single person. Because mm. Jimmy Hill um, was banging on about this 20, 30 years did
2: ago. Did he qualify as a referee
1: or something? He was a He did referee. everything, didn't he? He did everything, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Qualified. they uh, He was at a match for the BBC, ITV. He was at a match, Jimmy. And... Um, the the linesman went. Oh, the referee went over, pulled a hamstring or or whatever, and the linesman had to take over. And this was before fourth officials. And so, the the the, the call went out. Is is anyone in the uh, is anyone in the ground a, a qualified referee? And Jimmy Hill ran the line for most of the second half. Brilliant. <laughs> Came down, yeah. I'm a, I'm a qualified referee, and boom, ran the line. Fantastic.
2: That's what we want to see, Gary Neville running the line.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'd tell you what he would as well, whether he was qualified or not. He certainly <laughs> <he, he laughs> to, talk to the players, Absolutely, clear <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we'll see, we'll see. And <laughs> look,
2: there's
0: this isn't going away. There's m- going to be more, not less VAR, if uh, reports oh, are to be believed. For, yeah. for. Uh, oh yeah,
1: free th- kicks and yeah, cards. Yeah, free kicks and yellow cards. I can see. I, I must admit. If you can, that works for me. If you apply one simple guideline, you've got to be able to see it in thirty seconds. Mm-hmm. Can't delay the game for more than that's thirty okay. seconds for a corner, right? But if you can see straight away one replay, no, it's come off that fella. You should be able to tell the. You should be able to tell the um, referee. No, that's come off the other player. There was a a match a couple of uh, seasons ago, Burnley at West Ham. and uh, West Ham at Burnley, sorry. And I'm driving along the car on a Saturday, I'm, I'm listening to it on the radio. And the radio commentator called in real time that a decision that was a Burnley corner was a West Ham goal kick. And he called it from sitting in, and we've all been in that press box at Turf uh, yeah. Moor, you're not exactly near, you couldn't be further up the back mm. of the stand. <clears throat> um, and he called in real time, uh, naked eye, that's a mistake. Um, the COCOM's coms guys said exactly the same, and that's the West Ham goal kick. Anyway, it gets given us a Burnley corner, I'm driving along, one of my lads is in the passenger seat, we're both West Ham. Fans <laughs> we have looked at each other, going, they'll score from this, you watch. <laughs> and with that, they scored. Now, VAR are going to look at whether there was any pushing or this or that going on in the penalty area when the corner came in. Is there a reason? So why can't VAR, if it takes 15 seconds, just say to the referee, oh, by the way, that's a West Ham goal kick. And it's not because it's West Ham. I've seen it on two or three occasions where it's gone the wrong way. And you've just thought, well, actually, VAR should be able to tell the referee because it's a goal-scoring opportunity. VR should be able to tell the referee they've given the corner the wrong way. As long as you're not sitting there for four minutes waiting for the decision, if you can do it in 30 seconds or 15 seconds, 20 seconds, set a limit. But you've got to be able to see it in one time. Mm.
0: Kind of comes back to my point from the other week, though, that I think we've opened Pandora's box. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure it'll ever be uh, yeah. you know, fully satisfactory, but um, yeah. it certainly isn't going away. Look, finally, Martin, you you went here with us on Monday to... No no, I news, no, 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 it wasn't. The sad news no. that Terry Venables uh, passed away at the age of eighty at the weekend. Yeah, He's yeah. someone you were close with. You, someone you've referenced
1: very many times this on podcast this podcast. I, I said that in the piece actually. That I probably quote him as much as I do any manager. You know, still still managing. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So why is that, Tell us, tell us a Because
1: about he was just he, he was he thought about football in a different way. He was a genuinely. Uh, I think he had a genuine, visionary way uh, of looking at football, looking at certain issues in football. He, he, um, his mentor was Malcolm Allison. Malcolm Allison was the same. We were talking the other week when you were writing the piece about goalkeepers and, and how many goalkeepers were coming from uh, you know, converted midfield players now and, and things like that. And I was saying that Malcolm Allison, uh, nearly 50 years ago, was talking about goalkeepers being coached to to pass the ball correctly, to strike the ball correctly. So most of them don't even know how to properly strike a football. Don't know actually how or what part of the foot you should be kicking with and, you know, when you should be, you know, where and when you should be kicking it. And um, Malcolm would be delighted now to see what has happened with goalkeepers because he was talking about this 50 years ago. And and Malcolm was uh, Terry's mentor. Um, and he thought about football in a different way and you know do you want to talk about the World Cup or draw and, and and things like that certain things he did with England certain things he did as an international manager and and you see um, you see elements of Gareth Southgate's management and you know I've been there at Gareth's press conference and heard his answer to a question and just thought yeah, that's that's because he worked with Terry, and, and that's how Terry would have looked at it. You know, he was he was he was a very very different guy. I, I, so Euro '96
2: was the first tournament I covered. I covered yeah, yeah, Scotland. Yeah. I actually met Martin at there. You probably wouldn't remember. But no, I do. I was I a little do. Scottish reporter. Yeah, you asking, me a fiver. Yeah, well, you, yeah. You, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I probably did cause you let me in <laughs> a joke. You, you Lee Clayton, let me in the Sunday briefing, which was priceless for me. But I couldn't understand. I mean, I, I do understand. It, obviously, I know what the stories were, but but why why did Terry? Why, why did they get rid of him at the well, end? I know, he, I know, it's a, another can of worms. Yeah, <laughs> he, well,
1: there was I the there was the uh, there was the the schism with Alan Sugar, and um, so it's the Hyatt the Hyatt Hotel in Birmingham, and um, in January, in the January before the tournament. And they sit down to talk about his contract. And um, Ian Stott, I I hope I've got his first name right, of Oldham, um, Noel White of Liverpool. There was the International Mm -hmm. Committee, and they were particularly against Terry. They may dispute that. I mean, Terry always thought um, Noel White in particular uh, was against him. And... And they were talking about the contract, and it was said that they didn't want to give him a, a contract until uh, until England had played the tournament, Um because and there was you, you've never won a competitive game, of course, <laughs> which is a bit unfair because he hadn't played a competitive game. And the conversation ends with him saying, "I don't do auditions," and that, that's that's the end of it. But what he also said to them, which was absolutely true, was, "You know the guy you're going to get to replace me. He hasn't won a competitive game for you either," <laughs> and uh which was true, which, 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 was, which was which was Glenn Hoddle, and. Um, so so that was it. And he, he never thought they really... You've got to remember how he gets the job. Jimmy Arnfield yeah. goes round yeah. and asks yes. football, asks the managers who should be England manager and takes this big sort of vox pop. And, it's, and, it, Cause, and it was
2: Terry. Because my, my big, one real close encounter with Terry was, was the press conference at the end. I remember him sitting there with the Sundays, which was mm. probably his last yeah briefing as England manager. And yeah. kind of... It was such sadness because what a great team it had been, what a great yeah, adventure, yeah, yeah. and he knew he was leaving. And and just from an
1: outsider's perspective, I was thinking, what is this? Why why is this guy? No, <laughs> why is this guy leaving? It was it was. Uh, I can remember the I could remember the photos. I could remember the photo call with uh, Glenn Hoddle because Glenn Hoddle was appointed before the tournament, yeah. so they yeah. they knew um, they knew. You know, Glenn Hoddle was already in place. And glenn asked if he could attend training and, and everything during euro 96 and terry said no and glenn couldn't understand why and terry's attitude was no, I, I can't have them looking at you over there trying to impress you for what they think you want mm-hmm. in you know and then me over here and that doesn't work you, you come in at the end but i can remember the uh um, the, the the photographers were taking the photo, you know, the two of them together, and one of them said, uh, obviously to Glenn, "Can we have a smile from the England manager?" And so he went, "Not for much longer, you." Can't. <laughs> 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 Which was absolutely spot on. Um, but no, it was it was it was a great tournament. We had yeah, and that's why I wrote in the piece that we had we had lunch me and him the day before we played Germany and. Uh, and that sort of thing as well. That, that sort of level of access, you but, know. Is this a false memory? But was Rio Ferdinand training with England? He called up four young players yeah. to train with That's the England right. squad, and Rio was among yeah. them. Um, he was sixteen at the time or something? Yeah, yeah, Rio was among them. Um, Sol Campbell, yeah, uh, was among them. You know, it, it, it was. <sighs> it was very. It, it was very shrewd. Gets he called up very young players. Wasn't scared of picking players that were older. Bought John Barnes. You know, John Barnes. You know, everyone thought oh, we'll ditch John Barnes. He didn't ditch John Barnes. He, eventually, you know, time. But at first, John Barnes was part of that team. Um, but young players that he brought in. I mean, Gary Neville mm-hmm. was a. I think it was a teenager. Yeah. When it, when he brought him in. Yeah. Um, in in the, that summer tournament where they played Japan Sweden yeah. and Brazil two, two, yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, played him center back didn't he yeah we, yeah played well Gary Neville's um tweet um yeah. after after Terry died took going through all the different positions he played in mm-hmm. Euro 96 because the system was so flexible <clears throat> So, so the blues main the kind of tactical yeah, yeah, uh, he played right back and he played uh, right wing back and he played right of uh, back 3 yeah. and Right wing, mm-hmm. as well. Once mm-hmm. we had the ball, he was he was meant to be the right winger. It, I mean, it, it, was, it was football as it was, as, it, as we all look at it and think, oh, it's meant to be played like that. It's meant to be flexible. It's meant to be all of these things. He's a really smart guy.
0: Well, if you haven't read Martin's piece, uh, I'd advise anyone to go and read it. It's, it's a beautiful read about Terry Venables. Martin. Johnny, James, thank you you very much. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you're subscribed, leave us a review, and we'll be back on Monday.